the problem with performance. So today's episode, we're going to talk about the problems of overperforming and what happens when you reach a certain level of proficiency and how it can detract from your ability to realistically protect yourself. That's all coming up in today's Peace Walker podcast. The question is, in today's day and age, how do you protect yourself, your family, and your community more effectively? Well, my name is Craig Gray, and today on the Peace Walker podcast, we're going to answer those questions and a whole bunch more. You're going to learn the power of protection, the art of influence, and the confidence of clarity as you build a protector's lifestyle to live, to protect, and to inspire at a whole new level. Craig Gray here, Peace Walker Podcast. You are on episode number 47, The Problem with Performance. Before I get into today's episode, I want to bring your attention to my six-day defense program. Sixdaydefense.com, which is all spelled out except for the dot. (laughs) Sixdaydefense.com, it is the opening to this Peace Walker lifestyle and being a protector. And it is an absolutely free program that you can partake in. The only thing it'll cost you is your time. It's made up of six days of training. Go figure, right? Maybe that's how we got the name. But six days of training. There are two five-minute videos per day. One video is a concept and the mindset, and the second video is the physical defensive tactic of being a protector, how to protect yourself, how to protect other people. The goes over the, what I call the six A's of safety. It goes over the fundamental concepts that you need to start your journey on this very powerful approach to life and a personal defense. Sixdaydefense.com. Go check it out. You will not be sorry. All right. So today we're talking about the problem with performance, which is kind of an interesting subject, I suppose. But here's kind of what happens, right? Let's say you start getting proficient. So people come in to my studio or they start with a Peace Walker private membership or they start shooting or whatever it is. And at first, it's uh, often when they come seek me out anyways, it becomes, or I, I should say it starts out as, you know, I want to learn how to protect myself. I want to learn how to protect my family. So it starts off very simply. And what quickly happens if they stick around and continue to train, this is what I see all the time, people will reach a certain proficiency point and then it becomes the next thing, right? With their performance, what they start doing is now they are performing and doing things differently than what they're going to run into in real circumstances. So for instance, let's say you started off in grappling. So at first, you're just trying trying to defend the mount, and you're just trying to not get your head punched in. But before you know it, now you're spending more time training how to get out of the triangle choke or sink in that omoplata 
or do that perfect single leg takedown or more sophisticated maneuvers and techniques and also defending from more sophisticated maneuvers and techniques. But at first, when you first come in and start training, you don't know what you don't know. So what you see as being the threat is different. Now, as you grow and develop and you start learning, what happens is your focus changes. Now, I'm not saying it's all bad, right? And I'm not saying that you can't adapt to those skills and be better because of them. You know, if you're good at, especially if it's a combat type sport, boxing, wrestling, kickboxing, BJJ, MMA, they're very, very adaptable to real situations. Because you're dealing with a a competitor, you're dealing with a resisting opponent, you're dealing with stress, you're dealing with pain, you're dealing with movement, um, which are all the same things that often drive the average everyday people away, which we talked about in the last episode a little bit about average everyday advantage and the extraordinary ordinary. But um, what begins happening as you get better and more proficient is you start spending more and more time on the more and more technical, less and less time on the things that you see every day. And your the attacks that you start doing change. For instance, in our in our academy at Ronan Krav Maga local academy down in Grand Rapids, Michigan here, or up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, depending where you're at, but um, probably up for most people. Um, you know, we let's say with the escape the mount drill that we do and um, escape punching uh, from the mounted position or defense, the mount, mounted defense from punches. Um, we usually use a high mount. And then, uh, of course, what happens, it's not my first rodeo, you know, we used to have a competitive team for BGJ and submission grappling and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, when I'm in sport mode, I'm not in a high amount. I'm, my hips are right into my uh, the person on the bottom, and I'm taking all the space, and I'm trying to squeeze out a, a either submission or or some dominant control. But that is not what happens out in the street. Typically, you know, you have to learn how to do that. So. Now, there's nothing wrong with it, obviously. Some people might argue, well, if you, if I can get out of that mount, it should be easier to get out of the high-mounted position. And high-mount, I know I'm using some terms that some of you might not know, and being that this is a audio presentation, not a video presentation, I can't really show you. But high-mount, basically, if you imagine someone laying, laying on their back and you straddled over them, right? So you have one knee on either side of their hips and you're kind of sitting upright. So that would be a high-mount, right? It might be where you're punching someone in that. Where a low mount um, and a more technical mount for grappling anyways is your hips are, you're like you're pushing your hips into their hips, right? And your your feet, often I'll use what's what I call the scorpion. I don't know what everybody else calls it, but scorpion where I, I thread my legs through theirs and kind of bring them together so it's harder for them to get me off of them. And then, you know, my arms are usually sprawled out and I'm kind of going from that position to 
moving to dominate the top position to squeeze out a submission. Um, now, keep in mind, you want to be fluid and be able to move from position to position and so forth. And it's a great game to play. But my point is, is like our Krav Maga gym isn't a, a grappling gym. It's not a sport, combat sport gym. And the people who come in, you know, are typically in their mid, middle age. I would say average age. A person who comes through my door is probably in their 40s. And we're not a BJJ school. But, you know, you want to have some competency on the ground and be competent at um, some of the basic types of street attacks that you'll get. But what happens inevitably is we get people who, um, you know, they get interested in grappling or they maybe have another background in, in grappling or they, you know, being that our class is very much, um, it's kind of like a Swiss army knife, which would be a great another episode actually. The Swiss army knife of, of training, meaning, um, you know, we, we train a lot of different areas to make the student, help the student to be well-rounded. So some people, because if you like, once you're exposed to grappling, it's easy, it can be very addictive, <laughs> especially if you don't have injuries or you're a little younger. Um, it can be very addictive because it's a fun game to play if you have, you know, people to play it with that are on the same page. Um, so what happens is you get folks who, um, you know, they kind of get into it and then they, they start making their game more sophisticated for the drills that we do in class, which yeah, there's nothing wrong with it, I suppose. But, but what happens is the, this is the problem of performance. Now the attacks that are being introduced in class aren't the attacks that someone is going to find out in the street readily. It's the attacks that you're going to find in the gym. It's the attacks that you're going to find at a MMA match. It's the attacks you're going to find at a Brazilian jiu-jitsu school. It's the attacks that you're going to find doing a competition or a tournament. Not the attack that, that Mr. Thuggery is going to do to you out on the street, which starts to make the class time more reliant upon technical training. So you have to have the balance of, you know, what are the most common attacks, at least for our purposes. And you want to be technical, but you don't want to be spending so much time on the technicalities of it that you're kind of outperforming the situations that you would really run into. And then, right, for instance, you know, the BJJ guy who's pulling guard and then gets stabbed to death by the thug because, you know, he's doing techniques and strategies that would absolutely work in the ring or in the competition, but will will not work very well, maybe even get you hurt or killed in the street. Now, I'm not saying that to, you know, be douchey or anything, because uh, like I've said at the beginning of this podcast, if you're a competitor, you have an advantage. I mean, even if your technique isn't the best or the most appropriate, or the you know the best technique or best system, whatever, you know the fact that you're under pressure and under stress and dealing with a resisting opponent makes up for a lot, and you're used to the stress. That's huge, 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 huge. But it's hard to replicate with again, especially weekend warriors, so to speak, middle aged weekend warriors who, you know, they don't want to necessarily get hurt and they want to enjoy their training too. For instance, if Back in the days of my academy, which has been running since, geez, I've been teaching since the 80s. But um, back 
20 some odd years ago when you know, I was in my 30s and we had a competition team at the academy, a lot of the people who were training were young. And now, partially it's because I'm older, right? Now, I would say the average age of our participant and student is probably in their mid-40s, at least early 40s. Not to say we don't have some teenagers and people in their 20s and 30s too, but we also have people in their 60s and, and above. Every once in a while, we'll get a person in their 70s, not typically, but once in a while. Um, so the performance level can become an issue. But even aside from like the age and sustainability thing, what are you training is a big, is a big uh, factor. What are you training? If you're training to be the next UFC champion or if you're training to be the next Navy, you know, to get into the Navy SEAL Team 6, your training is definitely going to be at a different performance level than if you're training for, if you want to say, self-defense or even being a local police officer. Why? Because situations are different. And although the training can be fun at a higher level of performance, if you're into that, it becomes very niche so to speak. So be careful that you're training those types of circumstances that you want to potentially use that training for. And it's a hard line, it's a hard balance, I think, in in these types of training environments. So your training environments and the performance that you gain you want to absolutely use to your advantage however when you become more um when you develop more performance i should say you will then start attacking differently and training different types of scenarios that oftentimes don't match what you're going to find in a real assault type of a circumstance in the in the street or in the field and that becomes detrimental to your training if you're training for personal protection and um, of the of the if you want to say of what you're going to run into in reality. Um, and that goes, you know, I've been picking on BJJ a lot and grappling a lot, and I don't mean to. Um, well, actually, I do mean to, but I also it is not just isolated to that perspective, right? Same thing, I. I love Silat as well, which is an Indonesian martial art, very prevalent with knife fighting and stick fighting and so forth. And for instance, like the Silat or Indonesian, I'm sorry, or Filipino martial arts, you know, the way that they attack with the blade, with the knife, isn't probably what you're going to run into with a normal type of a knife attack. If you look at, you know, the video surveillance footage or, uh, Lord forbid, you've been attacked yourself, um, very different type of an attack typically. So what happens is you start spending more time dealing with these circumstances that are less likely to happen and responding in a manner that you are less likely to either want to or be able to respond. And it becomes a problem with your training. So for instance, too, like when you're talking types of arts and approaches that are totally weapons oriented, 
Um, whether it's firearm or it's knife fighting or stick fighting or whatever, uh, you have to think of the totality of the engagement if that type of weapon is appropriate for the type of engagement that you're doing. You know, if you carry like an everyday kind of a carry situation with a, let's say, knife and you are a Filipino martial artist or Indonesian martial artist, and your go-to and you've been training, you know, somebody comes at you and you deploy your weapon and carve them up like, you know, Thanksgiving Day turkey. Well, guess what? See you in, see you in jail, maybe. You know, if it's not appropriate and it's not admissible that you should have used that level of force, you just used a lethal weapon on someone and maybe you could have just walked away. Maybe you could have talked your way out of it or maybe, you know, it was a totally, and maybe it was appropriate, but maybe it wasn't. So don't train so single dimensionally and let your performance dictate the tactical approach and the ethical approach. All right, I think I beat that horse enough. So hopefully you're picking up what I'm laying down when it comes to performance. Don't, if you're looking to train for being a protector in your life, in your average, everyday, ordinary life, then you have to keep in mind that as your performance increases, you will tend to start thinking like, you know, if you're in martial arts, you're going to start thinking like a martial artist, less like a survivalist. If you're in the shooting world, you're going to think more like a, you know, like a special ops tack person, not like a, a everyday concealed carry citizen. So you have to be careful that your performance doesn't hinder your efficiency and your effectiveness in a real confrontation if that's what you're training for. So that's the tip, trick, and tactic of the day. Don't let your performance become the problem and interfere with training to be a protector. And with that, I'm going to let you go. But before I do, I want to direct your attention one more time to 6daydefense.com. If you want to get started in this Peace Walker perspective and this protector lifestyle, go to 6daydefense.com and start on my free home study course. It'll only cost you your time. And you can check it out and you can maybe shoot me a, an email or something if you have questions. Sixdaydefense.com. All right. Craig Gray, Peace Walker Podcast, out. <laughs> Thanks for listening. See you on the next one. Keep going, gang. The question is, in today's day and age, how do you protect yourself, your family, and your community more effectively? Well, my name is Craig Gray, and today on the Peace Walker podcast, we're going to answer those questions and a whole bunch more. You're going to learn the power of protection, the art of influence, and the confidence of clarity as you build a protector's lifestyle to live, to protect, and to inspire at a whole new level.